Well, this morning we're going to talk about two things, a couple important topics. One is getting close to God. Namely, why can't we? Why can't we? Some of you feel that. Like maybe, you've, maybe this is a recent thing that you started stirring. You said, I'm going to check out this church thing. You're not even sure why you're here, but you've got this impulse. I, I want to be closer to God. And I, have, I just feel like I can't get there. Secondly, how can we get close to God? There is a way, and we're going to talk about that. And second, we're going to talk about this question. I don't know if you've ever wondered this, but why do Christians talk so much about blood? I mean, if you're here and you've never been in church before, you're probably thinking, is this a cult? I mean, they talk a lot. They just sang multiple songs talking all about blood. I have no idea what's going on there. Why do Christians talk so much about blood? So we're going to get into all that. And as we do that, we're going to keep looking at the ministry of Jesus as our great high priest. So if you've been coming the last few weeks and you've been tracking with us through Hebrews, this is a very high level, but we've been looking at Jesus as the high priest. What we saw in chapter 7 is that Jesus is a better priest. And then in chapter 8, last week we saw he has a better covenant. Now today in chapter 9 and then on into chapter 10, we're going to see that it's because he has a better sacrifice. Better priest, better covenant, better sacrifice. So here's where we're going to go today. I'm just going to give you a roadmap and we're going to jump right in. First, in verses 1 to 10, we're going to see the problem. The problem of old covenant religion. What was wrong with it? And why didn't it work? And then we're going to look at Jesus' better sacrifice in three sections. And the way we're going to look at it is, a minute ago we sang a song that started with a question. It said, what can wash away my sins? And the answer is, good, good, you're tracking. Well, I, I didn't necessarily write three more verses, but three more questions like that. So here's the, the, the three more verses you could sing in theory, although the syllables don't match up. One, in verses 11 to 14, what can make my conscience clean? What can make my conscience clean? Then in verses 15 to 22, what can put the covenant promises into effect? What can do that? What has the power to do that? And third, in 23 to 28, what can put away sin once and for all? And just like in the song, the chorus to all those verses is still the same. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So that's what we're going to see. So look at the first section with me. Verse 1 sets it up for us. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now, I say that it sets us up here because it gives us the two topics that the rest of verses 1 to 10 are going to look at. Regulations for worship and holy places, okay? But then it looks at those in reverse order. So, verses 2 to 5 tell us about the holy places in the Old Covenant. And then verses 6 to 7 tell us about the regulations. So, look at the holy places. In the Old Testament, the center of the people's relationship with God And the place where worship took place was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this big tent. And this tent wasn't set up just any old way. It was set up in a very particular way. If you remember back in chapter 8, we read this in 8.5. It said, when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything 
according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So God says, all right, I want you to set up a tent and I want you to set it up in a really particular way. So what was that way? Well, if you look down at verses two to five, there's two main sections of this tent. When you enter the first curtain to step into the tent, you come to the holy place. Now, there was a lot of stuff in there and we're not gonna get into that right now, but then there you come to another curtain. You walk through one, you're in the holy place. You keep on going, get a little further in, you come to another curtain guarding the way into a second section called the most holy place. You might have heard it called the holy of holies. The most holy place, it says, is where the Ark of the Covenant was. So you can see there's this connection between covenant, holiness, in the innermost part. And above the Ark was the mercy seat. This place where God's presence would dwell in the midst of his people. And guarding this place, above this mercy seat, so to speak, were these two cherubim, carved. Carved and covered in gold. And these cherubim were the same angels that were placed outside the Garden of Eden to keep Adam and Eve from going back in after they sinned. They were guarding the way. In the same way, here in the tabernacle, you've got cherubim guarding God's presence from sinful people. Now, there's a lot more we can say about the tabernacle. I just gave you a super brief flyover, but verse 5 gave me an excuse not to. It says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So I'm going to follow his cue and not speak of them in detail. What we need to see, why is he telling us all this? Is this just interesting factoids? I don't think so. What we need to see is that everything about the setup, the reason God said, do it according to the pattern, it was meant to communicate. It was meant to tell us something. The curtains of the tent reminded people sin had created a separation between them and God. Like you, you had to see that. You said, okay, well, if God's in there and I'm out here, clearly I can't get to him. Then there was the cherubim. They sent the same message telling people access to God is closed for sinners. Just like you couldn't get back in the garden, you can't come near to God. The cherubim remind you of that. And it wasn't just this physical space. So the, everything about the physical space communicated this distance, this keep back. You're sinful, you can't get close. But it wasn't just the space. It was the regulations of what they did as well. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. It says, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. Okay, so keep in mind what you've got here. What is this saying to us? Most people have to stay outside. Like, you're not a priest, you're not getting in. Okay, so you don't get to get that close even. Now, the priests, they got to go into the first section. They could get a little closer. They could draw a little nearer. They would go into the outer holy place to do things like keep the lampstand lit. They had to keep it lit at all times burn the incense twice daily, refresh the bread of the presence weekly. So they were regularly going into the first section, okay? They had a smaller group of people, had regular access. But as you kept moving in, as you got closer to the heart of the tent, closer to the actual presence of God, that was off limits to everyone, except one man, the 
high priest. One guy got to go in there and he only got to go in once a year. I mean, you talk about exclusive, like one guy, one time a year. And when he went, he never went, it says, without taking blood. Like you just didn't go in without blood, which he offered for himself and the people. His sins and the people's sins were transferred to an animal substitute who died in their place. And that substitute's blood was needed to atone for sins. Because the people were sinful and God is holy. So how could he come before a holy God? He had to bring the blood of a substitute. He couldn't get close to God without blood. Now do you see how everything about the physical space and the practices were meant to show something. They're meant to teach us. They're meant to show us that sin is what keeps us from God. The reason we can't draw near, the reason that no matter how hard you try that you can't get there is because we're sinful and God is holy. The only way a person could encounter God's presence was through the blood of a substitute. And even then, it was only one person, one time a year. That was it. No one else could draw near. No one else could get close to God. All of this was because of sin. In fact, that was the message of the old covenant system. We have a children's book that I think says it so beautifully at home. It says, because of your sin, you can't come in. That was the message of these sacrifices. That was the point of the setup. In fact, verses 8 to 9 tell us that was the point. Look at verse 8. It says, by this, what's this? This whole setup, this whole sacrificial system, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. So he's saying, look, here's the Holy Spirit given meaning. You want to know, what was that all about? Verse 8 tells you. It says, here's what the Holy Spirit's indicating. As long as that first section with all its practices and restrictions is still functioning, the way into God's presence is not yet opened. That's what you're supposed to get. As long as that's there, the door is still shut. But why is that? Why didn't the old covenant sacrifice make it possible for us to get close to God? Why didn't it work? Verses 9 and 10 explain the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem of the Old Covenant. What was it? It says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered, hear this, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. So two problems with the Old Testament sacrifices. One, they couldn't bring people into God's presence. Couldn't do it. That's what verse 8 means when it says the way is not yet opened. You can do these sacrifices for hundreds and hundreds of years and they won't get you in. The way is not yet opened. And second, they couldn't cleanse our consciences. No matter how many you offered, it wouldn't clean your conscience. Now let's talk about conscience for a second. Our conscience, this is how I would define it, our conscience is that inner sense of right and wrong that every person has. 
So if you're here, whatever your background, whatever your religious beliefs, you have a conscience, an inner sense of right and wrong. And in some ways, our consciences are kind of like moral nerves. Think about the nerves in your body, how they work. So bear with me here. So we have nerves that help us enjoy things and keep us safe, right? So when we put our hands up to a warm fire on a cold day, it's our nerves that say, ah, that feels good. And we can enjoy that. But if we put our hands on a hot stove, it's our nerves that say, get it off. That's not good. Take it off as quick as you can. That's the function of our nerves. They tell us what we can enjoy and what we need to run away from because it's harming us. Well, in the same way, our consciences help us enjoy things that are morally good. So when we do what's right, we feel good about it, right? And we can say that, oh, my conscience is clean. Like there's nothing in there that's bothering me. I I just did that thing and it felt good to do it. My conscience is clean. But when we do something that we know isn't right, that goes against our conscience, we feel guilty. We feel ashamed because we know we did something wrong. Even if nobody else finds out, we know it in our conscience. Now, our consciences aren't perfect. That should be said. They're not infallible. There are some times that we can think something is wrong when it's not. And there are times that we can think something's okay when it is wrong. Our consciences need to be trained, the Bible says, to line up more and more with God's word. So the longer we walk with Jesus, the more our consciences should line up with what he's told us in his word. But even though they're imperfect, conscience is a gift of God meant to help us avoid sin by knowing what's right and wrong. This built-in nervous system. But here's the thing. All of us have sinned. All of us have disobeyed God and rejected him. If we're honest, we know that we've ignored him. We've ignored his word. We instead try to live life by our own rules, for our own purposes, for our own glory. And again, if we're honest, we know that. Like, I don't need to convince you. You know that. And the reason you know that is because if it's working properly, your conscience is telling you that. That's how you know. When I say that and you say, yep, that's right. It's your conscience that's telling you. That guilt that we all feel down deep is proof that we have a conscience. So whenever you've felt just that sense of, oh, I know I shouldn't do this. Oh, I can't believe I did that. Your conscience is at work. We know that we've messed up. We know that we've done wrong. In fact, what scares us is just how much we've done wrong. See, your conscience doesn't miss a thing. Just like your finger doesn't feel pain just sometimes when you cut it, every little prick, every little scrape, every little cut, your finger and your nerves say, ow, ow, ow. And every time we sin and do something wrong, our conscience flares up and says, guilt, guilt, guilt. And that guilt is powerful. That guilt is one of the things that keeps us from getting close to God. 
Because we've already talked about how sin is what creates distance, right? Objectively, we can't get close to God. But even if we removed that barrier on God's end, the, the truth is that the guilt of our sin and the guilt of a dirty conscience is what keeps us from even wanting to get close to God. Dirty consciences are what cause us to run and hide from God's presence the way it did Adam and Eve in the garden. They knew something was wrong now and they didn't want to be close to God. And my guess is we all know this far too well. We know that when you're not living the way you're supposed to, or when sin is popping up in your life the way weeds are in our gardens right now, you, you know that. And, and there's a part of you that says, I don't even want to get close to God right now. Like, that is not on my list of to-do. So maybe when you're feeling that guilt in your conscience, you, you stop reading your Bible. Oh, I don't, right now I do not want to look in there. Maybe you stop praying. Maybe you stop coming to church. Maybe for some of you, that is why you're sporadically coming. Because you know, if I get there, there's a chance that my conscience might flare up and that guilt might rise to the surface. Some of you stop engaging with Christian friends. You just don't want to be around people who might bring this stuff up in your mind and in your heart. It's a fear of being found out by God. It's one thing to have a guilty conscience, to know inwardly, I did something wrong. And it's another thing to have someone else find out about it. This is why a lot of people don't want to run for public office, right? It's not that like they suddenly become aware later, like, oh, I forgot I did that thing 10 years ago. They know they did something wrong. They know they have a past. They know there are just guilt ridden things in their lives and they don't want someone to do a deep dive and find it it's bad enough they got to struggle in their conscience with it but to have someone go looking for it and find it they know there's things they've done things they've said things they are they don't want anyone to find out and we can be that way with God can't we we don't want him doing a deep dive on us we don't want him doing background research on us so we stay distant We keep him at arm's length so we don't draw near to God because we have dirty consciences. And the problem of the old covenant, if you want to boil it down, is that verses 9 and 10 say those sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience. They can't deal with that problem. You can offer as many lambs and goats and bulls and any other animals as many times as you want and it won't take away that guilt. Their power doesn't go deep enough. They only deal with regulations for the body, it says. So what we need is a better sacrifice. That's the problem. We need something that can actually deal with our sin and our guilt and our shame and make us able to worship God the way we long to. Now the rest of the chapter is going to show us God's given us that something. He's given it to us, that better sacrifice. And so we're going to look at the better sacrifice by answering those three questions. We're going to, so to speak, sing the next three verses of nothing but the blood. So our first question, what can make my conscience clean? Some of you are tracking saying, yeah, that is a problem. So what can? Let's look at verse 11 first. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, 
not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So the last couple of verses, 9 and 10, left us with this problem of insufficient sacrifices, saying they can't do it, can't do it, can't do it. And then verse 11 starts, but when Christ appeared. But when Christ appeared. He's saying, hey, there's a hinge here. The door was closed, right? And doors turn on a hinge. Suddenly the door's starting to open. The old arrangement wasn't working, but when Christ appeared, things were different. And how did he appear? As a high priest of the good things that have come. Well, what are the good things that have come? The new covenant things we talked about last week in chapter 8. Inner transformation, intimate knowledge of God, and entire forgiveness. When those good things came... Jesus was the great high priest who mediated them to us. And since he came as a high priest, well, I wonder what Jesus would do. What would a high priest do? Well, what have we seen the high priest did in the Old Covenant in verses 1 to 10? They entered a tent. They offered the blood of animals as a substitute to pay for the sins of the people. Well, guess what Jesus does? He enters the better tent and offers better blood as a better substitute to make better payment for the sins of his people. It says he doesn't go into the man-made tent, but he goes into heaven itself. Heaven itself. And he doesn't bring the blood of animals. He brings his own blood. The payment that he makes purchases not just temporary reprieve, but eternal redemption. And the best part of it is, Jesus' sacrifice is better because he's a better substitute. Look what I mean in verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and a sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if those things sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So what he's saying is the blood of Jesus does what the old sacrifices never could. It cleanses our conscience. His blood is able to purify our conscience from these, these works of sin that led to death. That's what the dead works are. All the stuff that got us in trouble in the first place that gave us the guilt and made us run away in shame. He says, Jesus can cleanse that. Look at the contrast here. He says, you got these goats and bulls and heifers. They could only clean the outside. They sanctified for the purification of the flesh. But the blood of Christ, it says, cleanses us inside. All the way down. He purifies our consciences. All the guilt that we carry around, Jesus can take away. He can take the guiltiest, most sin-stained conscience and make it clean. Friends, some of you need to hear that today. Your guilt can be gone. And by gone, I don't mean by ignoring it. I don't mean by stuffing it down and pretending like it's not there and putting a smile on your face while inwardly it's churning and eating away at you. By gone, I don't mean trying to be good enough to overcome all the weight of all that you've done I mean, it can be cleansed, but only by the blood of Jesus. 
Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. You can have that peace. Not by trying harder, not by cleaning yourself up, because you know what? As hard as you scrub, there's not a soap in the world that'll get your sin out. It only comes out with blood. But how? How can the blood of Jesus cleanse our conscience where the other sacrifices couldn't? They're both sacrifices. Why did one work, the others didn't? The key, I think, is in verse 14. It says there that Jesus offered himself without blemish. Now, if you know your Bibles, that's a really important phrase, even for the old sacrifices. Over and over in the Old Testament, God told Israel that animals they offered had to be without blemish. They couldn't have anything wrong with them. He didn't want the rejects, secondhand, leftovers, runt of the litter. He wanted the best. So he says there can't be broken legs and wounds and diseases. They had to be perfect, without blemish, physically. But Jesus was without blemish morally. In him there was neither trace nor stain of sin. Hebrews 4 already told us that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Chapter 7 told us that as our high priest, Jesus is holy, innocent, and unstained. He was spotless and pure. So while an animal sacrifice without physical blemish could cleanse outwardly, Jesus, as a sacrifice without moral blemish, can cleanse inwardly. That's what we have in Jesus. By his blood, he's purified our conscience from dead works to worship the living God. We've been cleansed so that we can draw near. You, we can get close now. You don't need to hide or cover up. Our God knows it all, but the blood of Christ cleans it all. The stain is gone. So friends, when you feel that guilt, and we all do, I'm not speaking to a select minority. I'm speaking to all of us. When you feel that guilt creep into your conscience, when it's doing its job, it says, oh, that was wrong. You shouldn't have said that. You should not have done that. When that guilt creeps into your conscience, don't carry it around. Take it to the cross. Let Jesus' blood do its cleansing work. He doesn't intend for you. It's not, it's not a spiritual merit badge to, to be the guiltiest person there is. We know what to do with guilt. We take it to the cross and we leave it there and let Jesus' blood cleanse it. All right, let's, let's go to the next verse of our song. Next verse of our song answers the question, what can put the covenant promises into effect? To explain that question, let's look at verses 15 to 17. But as I was working through this, I found it helpful personally to actually work in reverse in this section. So that's what we're going to do. If you look down at your Bible, verses 15 to 17, you see these are all connected. There's a flow of thought here. See the words for, for, since. He's building an argument. And what he does is he works down to the foundation of the argument. But what I want to do is I want to start at the foundation and work our way up. Okay, so look with me at the end of verse 17. A will, I'm putting that in there, a will is not in force as long as the one who made it 
is alive. Okay, let's start there. We know that's how it works, right? You might have a billionaire uncle. I mean, just oodles rich, who's promised you a fortune and homes and cars and businesses, and it's all yours in his will. Promises of things that would blow your mind. But how much of that promise do you get while he's still alive? None, right? That's how wills work. It gives you nothing while the one who made it is alive, okay? Well, now look at the first part of verse 17. Again, I'm working the opposite way, so I'm changing some of the fours and senses to therefores. Therefore, a will takes effect only at death. Which is why, moving back up one level, verse 16 now. Therefore, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. In other words, the trigger that unleashes all the benefits of that will to you, the heir, is the death of the one who made the will. Death is what activates the promises contained in the will. If the will's going to go into effect, the one who made it has to die. So far, we're like, yeah, that's obvious. So why are we talking about wills here all of a sudden? Well, the words for will and covenant used in this passage are the same word. They're not the same thing identically, but they're the same word. And there's some similarities. A will was similar to a covenant and that both of them promised blessings. Say, here's the good stuff that's coming to you. And they both require a death for them to take effect. Now, we're going to talk more about how that works for covenants in a minute. But I want you to see the point he's making in verses 15 to 17. In the same way that this billionaire uncle might promise you untold riches, and yet at the very same time, you might live day to day homeless and poor because if he hasn't died to activate the will, both of those realities can be true, right? You can be poor and homeless, and yet you know that when this guy dies, oh, riches are coming your way. Well, in the same way, God has made incredible promises to us in the new covenant. Things that just stagger us. But none of it matters if Jesus doesn't die. His death is what puts the new covenant into effect. Look at verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Why do the heirs get the inheritance? Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Because Jesus died and shed his blood as a perfect sacrifice, we've been redeemed from our sins, it says. So all the ways that we've broken God's law under the old covenant, which you could sum up as loving God and loving your neighbor, all the ways we failed to do that carried a penalty of death. Death is what sin deserves and requires. And when Jesus died, he satisfied the terms of the first covenant perfectly. His death as our substitute paid the price for our sins. In other words, he redeemed us, bought us back from the penalty of those sins. Why? So that now, those who are called, those who are trusting in Christ, who he has called from death to life, those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Because Jesus died, friends, the will goes into effect and the heirs get what the 
inheritance was promised. And what is that inheritance? It's all the blessings of the new covenant. It's forgiveness. It's a new heart with new desires to live for God. It's a clean conscience that's able to draw near. It's God's promise to say, I will not turn away from doing good to you. It's all the promises God made to Abraham that are ours by faith. The promise of blessing and a land, a home of rest with God himself. All those blessings are ours in the new covenant. And what could flip the switch and cause all those promises to go into effect? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. When he cried, it is finished, and breathed his last, he opened the floodgates of heaven so that all the promises of the new covenant were unleashed and came flowing to us in Christ. That means every promise we enjoy as Christians Think about your favorite promises that God has made you. Every promise we enjoy as Christians was put into effect by the blood of Jesus. Which is why 2 Corinthians says all the promises of God find their yes in him. And I would add in his blood. Okay, now we said that for a will to take effect, there had to be a death of the one who made it. But for a covenant to take effect, there had to be a death as well. But with a covenant, it was the death not of the one who made it, but of of animals who were killed, usually to symbolize the seriousness of breaking the covenant. So now look at verses 18 to 21. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. So he's saying, look, blood was required to put the first covenant into effect as well. And the blood was needed because of sin. The blood of the animal sacrifices was meant to remind the people of the awful consequences of sin. That's what blood was meant to show us. Say, hey, this is serious. This is costly. But... The blood was also meant to remind the people that though they deserve death for their sin, God had made a way of atonement through the blood of a substitute. Every time they did that, they said, that's not you. Yeah, there's, there's blood all over, but it's not yours. That's what they're supposed to see. They're supposed to just be horrified, like all this blood. Oh, but it's not mine. Over and over. And that's why everything was marked with blood as a seal and reminder of those truths. In fact, verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That blood that was literally everywhere in the Old Covenant was meant to remind people there was no forgiveness, no covenant blessings, no way to get close to God without the shedding of blood. Now, the blood of animals put that Old Covenant into effect. But the blood of Jesus activated the promises of the new. So who can put covenant, what can put covenant promises into effect? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Which brings us to our last question in verses 23 to 28. Talked a lot about sin, but what can remove sin for good? Look at verse 23 first. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
Okay, so he's building off of what we just saw in 18 to 22. He says, look, just like those old covenant holy places had to be purified and prepared for sinners to enter, so too does the new covenant holy place need to be prepared for sinners to enter. But this one needs a better sacrifice. Why? Because it's a better reality. And then he shows us how Christ's sacrifice is better by telling us two things his sacrifice is not. Do you see that? Instead of saying what it is, he said, let me tell you two things that Jesus' sacrifice is not. First, his sacrifice is better because he did not enter a copy of the holy place, but the real thing. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Second, Christ's sacrifice is better because he did not need to make it repeatedly. Verses 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So keep in mind, while the, holy, while the priest could enter the holy places only once a year, they still had to go every year, after year, after year, after year. Their sacrifice wasn't lasting or permanent. There was always more blood needed. Why? Because it was blood not his own. The substitute, the blood of the substitute, it was just an unwilling animal. Keep in mind, like, these are just animals grabbed out of a pen that say, like, hey, you're taking my place, buddy. This wasn't a heroic bull saying, I will take this for you, right? These are unwilling animals being drugged into this as a substitute. But when Jesus entered, he came with something better. He came with his own blood. The blood of a perfect sacrifice who gave himself willingly for us. He came for us. He lived for us. And now he says, I will die for you. And therefore, his sacrifice is once for all. He has put away sin for good. It's gone. It's removed. It's thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. And verses 27 and 28 bring all this home and they tell us why it matters. Verse 27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Friends, all humanity shares a common end. I don't know the details of your life. Some of you I've never met. But I know this. One day, you will die. And after we die, there is a judgment where God does that deep dive on us that we're all terrified of. Where nothing is hidden all our secrets are brought out into the light. 
and all our sin will get what it deserves. So how is it possible that when Christ appears a second time, we could be eagerly waiting for him? Shouldn't we be terrified? If I told you, hey, tomorrow morning, all your secrets are going public. And if we find anything, you'll be judged. Would you say, oh, I can't wait till tomorrow? No, you'd be terrified. You'd be dreading it. You'd be in fear of it. You'd say, I, I hope tomorrow never comes. I hope I don't live to see tomorrow. I'm, I don't want tomorrow to come. So how can it be that if Jesus is coming back and there's a judgment and all my sin is laid bare and everything is seen, nothing is hidden, how can I be eagerly waiting for him? Shouldn't we be afraid of being exposed and found out and then judged? No. Because when Jesus died, he bore our sins once and for all. Our sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Jesus already dealt with our sin, it says. So when he comes, he's not coming to die again, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Friends, what this means is that if you belong to Jesus... If you are his and he is yours, you have nothing to fear when he comes back. Sometimes we talk about Jesus coming back and I think we're like, yeah, I hope so, kind of, but I'm a little nervous. There is no reason to fear. There is no condemnation waiting for you. Nothing will be found out that hasn't already been paid for. Every sin will come out and Jesus will loudly say, paid for it. Paid for that one. Yep, that one too. It's all covered by my blood, which means that we can have a clean conscience. We know that his promises have been activated. He's put away sin for all so that when he comes back, we can pray, Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so... It is well with my soul. There will be no cowering in fear. So our last question is, what can give you that kind of eager confidence in waiting for Christ to come again? And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray.